Thank you, music team. You have served us so well for the past several months and again this morning. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're back in Ecclesiastes after several weeks, and once again, you're going to see that consistent exposition provides eternal truth with a very current application. We have arrived at the 11th chapter, and so we're almost at the end of the book. Now, just for an on-ramp to Ecclesiastes 11, if you haven't been with us or it's been a while, uh, remember there are four parts to the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the introduction in chapter 1, then there is the conclusion in chapter 12, and between the introduction and the conclusion, there are two sermons that are there. Verses or chapter one through uh, through about six and a half, and then chapter seven through about eleven and a half. Those two sermons with an introduction and with a conclusion. And while that's true, the book has one consistent theme: life under the sun is vanity without without God. Ecclesiastes shouts to us from the from the very first verse that the curse is all around us. We are living life outside of the garden. And you look around you and say, duh, right? Without faith, that life outside of the garden can, even the best of it, can be very vexing, can be frustrating, can be futile. And you can see the, the theme of, uh, of, of any book by, by looking through the binocular lenses of the introduction and the, the ending. How someone begins the book and how someone ends the book. It's like reading the dust jacket. It gives you the main thrust or the, the main theme. And the introduction, in his introduction, Solomon lays out what he will prove to us, his thesis. The very first verse, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know the verse very well. That's what he says, I'm going to show you in this, in this book. And he's been chasing the wind ever since chapter 1. And he never catches it. That's what the world is like because of the fall, and that brings frustration and difficulty. And then in his conclusion, Solomon says in the end, so what? Fear God and keep His commandments because God's going to bring everything into judgment. God will take the things that, you, that are crooked that you can't make straight, and He'll straighten it out. God will bring everything into judgment. He'll make right what is wrong. And the book of Revelation tells us that He'll even remove the curse one day through the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I am looking forward to, to that day. In between that introduction and that, that conclusion, there are two sermons that bridge the gap. The first one teaches us, proves to us, that, that life outside of God, any pursuits are frustrating. And then in the second half, which is where we're at, he provides wisdom to to help us in this cursed world until that end comes, until the curse is removed. And so we're going to wrap up that second sermon today. Now in chapter 11, Solomon has one more wise lesson for us about living well with, with life's uncertainties. How do you live in a world that's marked by, by the curse? One that's crooked, one that, that you take two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it's, it's uh, one step forward and two steps back. One where folly, at the end of chapter 10, it reigns in the highest places in the land. How do you live in a, in a world like that? 
all that Solomon has said up to this point, if you just track through, through the book, you might conclude that, that you should just fold up your hands and wait on eternity. I mean, wait for, the, wait for the rapture to come. I mean, if this world is hopelessly crooked and can't be made straight, you might be tempted to, to give up in trying to advance anything on the, on the earth. I mean, is that God's plan? Some people act like it is. I mean, some Christians even act like, like that. In light of the curse, should we just give up? We maintain? Do we, is our task just to hold the fort down until Jesus comes to, to rescue the day? Or is God commanding something better? Well, that's what Solomon is going to teach us in this final lesson. God is indeed commanding something better. And in these six verses of chapter 11, Solomon will give us God's strategy for prospering with an ever-present and yet unpredictable curse still reigning all around us. Now, the ultimate victory, the ultimate prospering will be when Jesus returns. But you don't have to give up the give up uh, an inch of ground even now, even cursed ground. One preacher called these six verses, God's guide to worry-free living, if you follow them. It's wisdom's guide for advancement outside of the garden. It's, it's God's direction for, for taking rewarding risk. It's, it's a heavenly battle plan for, for saints while they're in their earthly camp. In a world that is bent and irregular and fallen, Things can be vague and uncertain, but in these six verses, God gives us a foolproof guide for deliberate decision-making, for waiting on the kingdom. Do you have a hard time making decisions? Sometimes I do. Do you hesitate or, or worry about failing quite a bit? Are you prone to analysis paralysis, as it's called? Are you the gold medal champion of mental Olympics? I've won that award many times. Maybe, none of that's true, maybe you just need to get a new rank in the Lord's army, then you need to heed the words of Solomon today. Because in these six verses, he's going to give you five strategies for prospering in an uncertain world. There are five strategies for prospering in an uncertain world. And these strategies take into account the fall, take into account God's sovereignty, and take into account your responsibility. This is not some health, wealth, gospel nonsense, but wisdom's path to deliberate faithfulness in a fallen world. If you want to prosper in the Lord's work outside of the garden, you need to, number one, take reasoned risk in verses 1 and 2. Number two, you should expect uncontrollable circumstances in this life in verse 3. You should avoid overanalysis in verse 4. You should recognize human limits or human ignorance in verse 5. And then finally, you should perform personal duty in verse 6. Let's look at the first one. The first strategy that we are given here for prospering in an uncertain world is to take reasoned risk. Both of those words are important. Reasoned risk. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. In verses 1 and 2, Solomon calls us not to rest on, on, the laurel, on our laurels in, in life. I mean, you can see that from the, from the two verbs that begin the, the sentence. Cast, 
your bread, divide your portion. I mean, they're both actions. God expects you to take what He gives you and do something with it. That's the idea. But you have to use wisdom. You have to be bold and you have to be prudent, which is part of wisdom. I mean, looking at the four parts of this verse, I think will help you see what Solomon is saying. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters. It's the first part of verse 1. Take risk, for you will find it after many days. Expect a return. Take the risk, expect a return. Chapter, verse 2. Divide your portion to seven or even eight. Diversify risk. And then the second half of verse 2. For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Avoid disaster. Now, I, I, I'm sure these are familiar verses, at least the first one. It was to me, cast your bread on the waters. I used to hear that. Isn't there a song about that, right? There's several interpretations of what Solomon is, is saying here. I mean, are we literally to go to the James River and tear off hunks of bread and throw it in and come back a, a week or so later and, and find them? I'm not sure that you would want what you found, even if you did find it. I think there are probably a smallmouth bass who would be really happy that you are taking that kind of, of action, and that's not much risk. Is this an allegory about giving? I mean, the church fathers saw allegory in everything. So they read this, and they said this is talking about being, uh, taking risk by being generous. Cast your bread on the waters means be generous and, and give. Like cast your money away. And sadly, that's what you'll do if you give it to the TV preachers. You'll just cast your money away. The church fathers thought verse 2 meant giving generously to many. Luther even took that position. Give generously to many, seven, even eight. And this is like the positive uh, version of the parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16. You remember that guy cooked the books whenever he's going to be called on the carpet by his master, and he did that. So his debtors, his master's debtors, would be favorable to him when he got fired. Maybe they'll give him a job. This is the... They would say this is the opposite of that. You should be generous to many people. So when misfortune comes, your generosity will return to you. And it's true that giving generously to God is an act of faith, and it feels like reasoned risk. When you come to the... It's true, when you come to the... the Amount box on the check, and you, you pause to consider how much. Heavenly-minded believers add more zeros, not less. I don't know that anybody in here can do seven or eight, but probably more than one, I would guess. It's true, faith-fueled followers send their bread off with, with a free hand. Or they, they cast their seed, and they're waiting for a harvest. And while all that surely fits the principle here, I think the context helps us understand exactly what Solomon has in mind. And it's not allegory. If you pay attention to the illustration that Solomon uses next, I think the, that this illustration becomes abundantly clear. Look, if you would, at verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the, at the clouds will not reap. Look, if you would, at verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you don't know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. I think that gives us a clue of what he's talking about in verse 1 and, and 2. This is a similar illustration. Verses 4 and 6 is, is talking about an agricultural illustration. This is talking about an illustration about merchants. The word for cast means to send or to let loose like a ship. And the word for bread is, is always translated bread. It's never translated seed anywhere else in, in Scripture. And I think that you could hear 
Solomon echo this in the Proverbs 31 woman. She looks for wool and slack and a flax, and she works with her hands in delight. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Those ships are let loose. They go out from afar, and then they return with prophets. Same word here, lechem, or, or bread, like Bethlehem. Rather than a proverb about giving, this is an illustration about commerce and taking risk in it, reasoned risk, and using ships as you do it. So let loose, Solomon says, send bread over the waters and they'll return with a prophet after, after many days. Solomon is saying take reasoned risk by sending them out. And, and even when you do that, you, you don't know when they're going to return. A merchant ship that was sent out, it was a huge investment. And they didn't return sometimes for years. Solomon is saying risk in a fallen life is inevitable. So be willing to take it. You can't be risk averse. You have to take reasoned risk, not reckless risk, and he'll give you instructions. Solomon is the, is the writer of Proverbs. He's all about planning and, and being wise. But he's saying once you do that, pull the trigger. It's risk nonetheless. It's risky to start a new business so you can better provide for your family or start a new job so so you can give more to the Lord. It's risky to start seminary. It's, it's risky to reach out to someone for help and expose yourself whenever they don't know that you're, you're struggling. It's risky to, mit, to commit to the choir or, or a ministry position and, and give up time, not knowing exactly how, how you're going to get to the rest of your chores done. It's risky to commit more to the gospel. But God says taking reasoned risk is the only way to prosper in His world. And he also says, if you take that risk, you can expect a return. Look at what else it says here. Take the risk, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, expect a return. For you will find it after many days. Now, that's a powerful truth. It says, those of you who commit your bread to God will, will find it returning in a great reward. You ever done something for the Lord? You had no idea? whether anything good will come from it? Well, here's something that you can cling to, but you have to put it on the ship and send it out before any reward can come. But if you do, you'll find not only it, but much more after many days. C.H. Leopold said, God guarantees success, but that which God grants requires both faith, sending the ship out, and patience, waiting on the return. It takes faith to obey God, and it takes patience to wait on God, doesn't it? Both of those two things are difficult, but you're commanded to do that. The emphasis in this verse lies on the certainty of the reward, as, as well as it will not all be received at once. It's you will find it, certainty, after many days. It won't be received all at once. It's exactly the same truth that Jesus teaches in the, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. It, it's almost like Jesus read Ecclesiastes, or better, wrote Ecclesiastes. Look at verse or chapter 25. You know this parable well. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. And he called his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. He gave one five talents and another two and another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on a journey. Notice there's risk. He's, he's committing it. 
he's going away. There's going to be reward or the, the slaves being called on the carpet at a later time. And you know the parable. The wise servants took risk and invested their talents and they gained future reward when the master returned. They had more to present to him. But the wicked servant was fearful and doubting and in the end lost even what he had. He was a wicked servant, the master says. Jesus and Solomon say the life of faith is the life of the wise servant. It's one of faith-fueled action, not reluctance or, or fear. And you must take risk and put yourself out there for God to, to use you. You've heard of the analogy, you can't steer a parked car. It applies here. A car is, is steered. You steer the car while the, the, the wheels are moving. And if you put the car in drive, the Lord will steer you. And if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time in life. But Solomon says as you take that risk, be calculated. Be reasoned. Because it's a fallen world. Look at the verse again, verse 2. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Solomon says here, don't just plan for success, don't just take risk, but also plan for failure. As you plan, plan for failure. You see that word there? Seven or eight, because of misfortune that may occur on the earth, under the sun. My friend Joel James said, whenever this misfortune comes, it's not because of a guy named Murphy, but of a man named Adam. As a Christian, you don't need to worry about Murphy's law. You need to worry about Adam's fall. And that's what Solomon's been teaching us about in this, in this book. Solomon says life, because of Adam, is often unreliable, but it's not unprofitable. And the only way to get profit out of it is to live with faith-filled risk. Or to say it another way, effort produces results even in a fallen world. But you must not only plan for success, but also failure. That's wise. That's the summary of verse 2. Solomon says, don't just send one ship, send many. This is the principle that you should not put all of your eggs in one basket. You've probably heard that maxim before. Take risk, but make it reasoned. Make investments of your time into the kingdom. Seven or eight is figurative, meaning spread it out. This is the first of many times that Solomon is going to say in these six verses that you're ignorant and I'm ignorant. It's to humble us. Verse 2, he says, For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Look at verse 3. You do not know whether a tree falls toward the north or toward the, toward the south. Verse 5, you do not know where the wind blows or how God does other things. Verse 6, you do not even know what labor God will give success think there's a theme there? There's a theme all the way through here. God, uh, human ignorance and God's providence. But your ignorance, my ignorance, the fact that we don't know what God will bless should not keep us from trusting Him and trying things for Him that's reasoned. God can humble our best planning, but we should still have a plan and execute it. That's what Solomon says. Notice it doesn't say that you, that you could lose your boats because of misfortune, so don't send them. It's too risky. Keep them in the dock. 
No, it says send, send more of them. Send seven or eight because God will bless some of them. Two of them may sink. The storm may get one. But God promises a reward. Fruitful labor, the Bible says. Fruit that comes from your labor. Do you realize what this says if you're a believer? It says that you don't have to fear failing. That's what it says. So what if your first plan failed? Maybe your second or your third or your seventh will, will reap tenfold. So what if you rejected the last time that you witnessed? The, the sixth person may come to Christ. You can't control when they do anyway. So what if you fail? At least you tried and you're not a coward. Besides, failure is part of success. No one ever got ahead or did anything with God or for God without, without failure. What if the Apostle Paul decided to pack it in as a missionary when he got rejected at the synagogue in Iconium? Then he would have never reached the gospel, uh, reached the Gentiles with the gospel. What if David would have thrown in the towel after his heinous sin with Bathsheba and, and the death of his first child? Well, you probably wouldn't be reading Ecclesiastes from a human standpoint because Solomon learned a lot from David's knee. You can see echoes of, of the Psalms from David in, in Ecclesiastes. What if Adoniram Judson had went home after his first wife died? Thousands of future missionaries wouldn't have, a, wouldn't have had a cut path to, to walk. What if, what if Charles Spurgeon stopped preaching after the, the Surrey Music Hall fire? Think of church history without Spurgeon's Honey dripping from its combs. I mean, the gospel bell never sounded louder in London than from the Metropolitan Tabernacle. What if John MacArthur had capitulated when some of his best friends said that he denied the blood? What if you give up on God right now? Then you won't get the blessing and the success that he promises to bring to faithful believers that may just be around the, the next bend. Be bold, dear Christian. Your king rides with a victor's banner, not a white flag of surrender. Take risk, accept reward, but plan even for failure. And God will prosper you. Let's look at the second one. The second strategy for prospering in an uncertain world is to expect uncontrollable circumstances. Look if you would at verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Solomon says, take reasoned risk and don't be a fear-filled saint. But remember, life is uncontrollable. And certain things are inevitable. It's the idea here, inevitability. If the clouds are full, they pour out the rain. It's inevitable. Once they're full, they rain. If the tree falls, it falls. You can't control whether it falls to the north or, or to the south. Solomon mentions two natural phenomena here. And the point is you have no control over them. Clouds that rain, trees that fall, they both happen on their own terms, which is the point. And you can see the emphasis at the end of the verse. After the tree falls, you have no control north or south. Wherever it falls... There it lies. That's the exclamation point. Solomon's point is the process of creation goes on whether you worry about it or not. And even if you did worry about it, you couldn't change a thing. 
So don't stop living. Let me put it this way. You ever tried to plan an outdoor wedding or maybe a large family picnic? And you pick the day and you put it on the calendar and you send out the invitations. And then you watch the weather like a hawk to see what the prognosticators are saying. The closer it gets, the more you pay attention day after day. I've done the same thing. You ever had any success of keeping it from raining by turning on the Weather Channel? How many anxious moments did you waste worrying over rain? And if it was sunny that day, it had nothing to do with your, your hand-wringing. Worry over what you can't control is a common disease that inflicts many Christians. And you can diagnose it by listening for the words, but what if? An opportunity is presented for you to serve in some way, and you consider it, and, and immediately what comes to your mind, but, but, but what if? But what if it's too much for me to handle? But, but what if I fail? But, but what if I come out of my house and I, and I get sick? The rain comes whenever the, the clouds get full of moisture. And when the tree falls to the north or to the south, there it lies. You can't predict it and you can't control it. They're inevitable. And there are things in this life that happen that you can't predict and you can't control. And that's no reason to stop living. Solomon says you can't shrink back from making decisions or planning for God or planning for anything because of what may happen any more than you can cease planning for that wedding because it may rain. You should move forward and plan it. And just, to, just for good measure, follow point one and, and get a couple tents or maybe seven or eight, depending on how big your family is. Solomon is saying don't be frozen by things that you can't control. Live your life. If it rains, it rains. Take pictures with your wet head. You'll remember it later. Except that there are certain things in life, in this fallen world, that you can't change, and certain things are inevitable no matter what you do, so don't waste your worry on it. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, is ever outside of God's control. And Solomon will show us all about that next. Here's the third strategy for prospering in an uncertain world. Avoid over-analysis. Avoid over-analysis. If you would at verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks to the clouds will not reap. So he says, take reasoned risk. It'll bring reward in verses 1 and 2. Don't be risk-averse as a believer just because of the fall or the curse, because you can fail. Don't be worried about what you, can, you can't control in verse 3. And here, don't be overly hesitant and overanalyze everything, or you'll never do anything. This verse is really the drumline of the entire section. A lot of times in, in Proverbs literature or in in Hebrew writing, they, they'll, things will be packed around the, the meat of the sandwich. This is like the drum line that, that ripples through the, the rest of the, of, of, the, of the passage. Over-deliberation or analysis paralysis will keep you from being productive. The focus of this verse, notice, is what the farmer does and what it keeps him from doing. Verse 4, he who watches the wind, he watches the wind, he looks at the clouds. 
And because of that, he never sows or reaps. Now, every wise farmer knows that you should look at the weather and you should try to evaluate the weather before you, you do your, your work in, in the field. But you can take that to an extreme and never go to the field, and that's what's in this verse. If you look for the perfect opportunity, your opportunity to do, to do something for the Lord may pass you by. Solomon changes illustrations now from a merchant to a farmer, but this farmer sits in his house and he looks for the perfect day to sow and to harvest, and because of that he never reaps. He gets up on the day to plant, he looks out his door, he sees a little wind, and, and he says, I better not sow this morning, I, I may lose some seed. Then another farmer has planted his seed, and when harvest time comes, he, he, he looks out the window and he says, it looks too much like rain, I better not, better not cut the hay today, and, and then he never does. Solomon says, in a fallen world, the wind may come in the middle of planting and it may rain on your wheat after it's cut, but that's part of life, plant and reap anyway. Listen, don't let what could happen paralyze you so that nothing happens. I mean, verse 4 is the person who spends three hours trying to figure out the perfect way to clean the house and then they run out of time to clean it. It's the person who looks for the perfect time to invite their neighbors to church, so they never do. It's the person who prays and prays for God to do something, but worries over how He'll do it, so they never obey what God's already commanded them to do in the Bible. It's the church that waits for every little detail to be plain and every contingency covered before they start a project, before they send a missionary, before they build a building, and they end up doing none of those things. Are you prone to analysis paralysis? Do you overthink everything and end up getting less done? Solomon gives you a how-to guide to avoid it. There is no perfect time to do anything in a fallen world. I can remember Glenn Matthews telling me, one of my mentors, when we were talking about scheduling a revival, and I wanted to pick the time, that he said, Brian, just put it on the calendar. There is no good time to schedule meetings. Somebody will always have something to do. God's the one that brings revival anyway. There's no perfect time to do anything. And God's the one that brings us success anyway. So sow the wheat with a little wind, harvest with the clouds in the sky. Don't overthink things. Wait for perfect peace or God's still small voice. We're to send our boats out into the water. And if you're concerned about potential loss, then send more boats, plant more fields, because God promises a harvest to His church. And you can trust Him even if you don't know how He will do it. The fourth strategy for prospering in an uncertain world is to recognize human limits. Look, if you would, at verse 5. Notice the echo again. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. The fourth strategy is to recognize human limits, or just to put it more simply, acknowledge you're ignorant. That's what Solomon is saying here. Solomon transitions to another limitation. 
that comes under the sun. We're always limited compared to understanding what God is doing and when God chooses to do it. And our ignorance here is revealed uh, related to the wind and the womb. Both of those two things illustrate how we're ignorant. Now, there's a couple of different interpretations here. Either these are two things that expose our ignorance, or they're one thing together. What do I mean by that? Solomon is either saying, you do not know which way the wind blows. You can't see the wind. And you also do not know how God forms a baby in the, in the womb. I mean, think about that. Conception happens, and a little human being grows. It's amazing. So it's either two things, the wind and then a baby. This is like, which is the one I think is, is correct. Jesus, I think, uses this with Nicodemus when he's talking about salvation, being born from above, the supernatural birth that's sovereignly granted by the, the Spirit of God. You can't control when God does that. You cannot control when the Spirit does that. The Spirit is like the wind. He blows where ever he wishes, or it blows wherever it wishes. So it's either two or it's one. And the idea here is you don't know when, how God brings a spirit into conception, and you don't know how that baby is formed in the womb. So it's all about a baby. The, the spirit idea and then the growth idea. Either way, the principle is the same. You're reminded how little knowledge that you have compared to, to the Lord in this verse. Both the wind and the growing of a baby are invisible and they're outside of your control. But just because that's true, that shouldn't keep you from living for God. Solomon's point is human ignorance, but also God's providence. Notice the second half of the verse. Just as you do not know the path of the wind or how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know, watch this, the activity of God who makes all things. Whether you understand how it's being done or whether you know if God will do it, God is active and He is working even this morning. I preached this message twice today. I preached it to my heart many times. I have no idea. I may have felt wonderful at 8.30 and feel horrible right now, but I have no idea what God's going to do with the seed. But my task is to preach it with the same vigor and the same faithfulness both times. It has nothing to do with how I feel. It has everything to do with God being active or at work. There are many things in life where you think that you know what's happening and there are plenty others where you have no clue. And you're limited and you're ignorant, but that should not stop life. And there is much of God's work that lies, lies beyond our knowledge, and that shouldn't trip you up. In fact, that should encourage you. It's proof that He's God and that you're not. You should be thankful for passages like Romans 9 through 11 that leave you scratching your head. And then submit to what they say, because God is God and you're not. Walt Kaiser said, how, God's, how God works out His purposes in detail may escape us, but our ignorance does not stop the result, nor should it prevent our wholehearted involvement in life to His glory. But before you ever trust God by faith, you have to acknowledge your ignorance. And if you acknowledge your ignorance, then that will lead you to dependence. And in a state of dependence, God can use you. The song you need to hum whenever you're perplexed about what God is doing is I know in whom I have believed. 
or little as much when God is in it. I know not how this saving faith to me he did in part, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I have no idea how that happened. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith within. I have no idea when that's happening. But I know in whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. Do you realize the missionary engine that lies unstarted because human faithlessness requires God to answer all questions before it turns the key? Send forward the men, cast forth the seed, launch out the servants, because God has promised to harvest. And whether you see Him working or know how He does, He is at work, and you don't have to know how. You only have obedience to bring to the process. It's number five. Look at the fifth strategy here. The fifth strategy for prospering in an uncertain world is to perform personal duty. Look at verse six. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be will be good. Verse 5 and 6 go together. I mean, verse 5 is talking about God's ways, the way that He works, the way that He moves. You're ignorant of. Notice the you don't know phrase again here in, in verse 6. A believer finds motivation in knowing that life is supervised by God. He's at work. And then in verse 6, He tells us what we're supposed to do. What's our part of it? You let God take care of the mysteries and you take care of the work. That's what he says in verse 6. This is an incredibly freeing passage. Because it says your solitary task, your duty is to be faithful. Perform personal duty. It's another farming illustration. And the point is you must make hay when the sun shines. It's echoed in the New Testament, isn't it? You work while it's day because night is coming. You should sow when you can. Morning and evening just means the entire day. You sow, your, uh, sow your seed, do your work diligently and, and abundantly. You sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether the morning or evening sowing will succeed. Or whether both of them will succeed. Maybe the seed that you planted in the morning is what comes up in a harvest. Maybe it's what you planted in the evening. Maybe both. You don't know. You cannot know whether sowing in any of these times is the best time for the seed to take root, but that's not what you need to worry about. Your task is to work a full day. That doesn't matter. Divining outcomes for the best moment for things is above your pay grade. That's God's business. Our business is to be faithful. That's what the Lord is saying here. Don't worry about if this person or that person will respond to the gospel. Just share it. Don't trouble yourself over when is the perfect time or the perfect way to do family devotions. Just, just salt your speech with the Word of God during the day. Just tell your children about Jesus, what, what you read this morning. If you didn't read this morning, read. Don't fret over which girl or guy is God's perfect match for you. I mean, if you don't get around any, it's not going to matter who the perfect match is anyway. You've heard the world's maxim, opportunity knocks only once. Well, Solomon says, you don't need to know when it knocks. You just do your job because God's the one keeping the door anyway. It's faithful labor that, that wins the day. 
not a perfect pitch. Just get on base. Play the game. <laughs> Don't worry about hitting a home run each time. David Hubbard said, "Our limits, the limits of our wisdom are, are catalyst of industry, not despair. And in verse 6, we're back where we started in verse 1. So whether it's an export business or a farmer, in a fallen world, you take reasoned risk, you plant your seed, and our lack of knowledge in God's command is to take that risk and do that duty in life, and God alone gives the results, so you must labor, and if you do, you'll see that outcome. The verse that we quote on a regular basis in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is a wonderful verse, which says, uh, Paul said, I planted an Apollos water, but God gives the increase. That's the emphasis. Stop worrying about whether you're following Paul or you're following Paulus, because it's all about the Lord. There's a tail side to that, that coin. Yes, God's the one that gave the increase. But Paul's the one that planted, and Apollos faithfully watered. Do you know how many Christians pray for souls, but then never invite their coworker to lunch to witness to them? How many pray for, uh, to grow spiritually, but never pick up their Bibles and read? How many lament that they can't understand the, the sermons, but then never study the homework notes that are given to them, or listen to the sermon a second time? You get the point. You want to do more for the Lord? You want a better marriage? Whatever it is, then work at it and leave the changing of your spouse to God. But make sure that God has a free hand to do that because you've done what you've been commanded to do. Don't think that just because you're on the team, that's enough. Get up and get after it. Charles Spurgeon said, like the apostles, our memorial must be our acts, the acts of the apostles. We must, have, uh, must be done with daydreams and get to work. He said, I believe in eggs, but we must get chickens out of them. <laughs> I don't mind how big your egg is, maybe in an ostrich egg if you like, but if there's nothing in it, pray clear away the shell. We want facts, deeds done, souls saved. It, it's all very well to write essays, but what souls have been the means of, uh, of saving from going down to hell? We're glad to hear about those special meetings, but, but how many have really been born of God in them? Are, are saints edified? Are sinners converted? And don't forget, Spurgeon's a Calvinist. Brethren, do something, do something, do something, he says. While committees waste their time over resolutions, do something. While societies and unions are making constitution, let us win souls. Too often we discuss and discuss while only Satan laughs in his sleeve. It is time we have done planting, a planning, and sought something to plan. I pray you'll be men of action, all of you. Get to work. Quit yourselves like men. And if you have been doing that and going after it, then God says don't grow weary in well-doing. You shall reap if you faint not. Understand, when you hear a message like this, me, I'm going, I want to do more for the Lord. But you may already be doing a lot for the Lord. The message to you this morning might not be you need to get up and get after it. The message to you might be you're up and after it and you need to not grow weary in well-doing because God promises you a harvest. You don't need to get busy. You need to remember that 
that God says that He'll bring fruit. The reaping is coming as sure as heaven is real. Your labors are not in vain. God promises that you will reap. Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. It's coming. Keep rowing. Besides, we're just unprofitable slaves anyway. You shouldn't rest like it's just nice to be on the team, but it's a privilege just to be in the field and labor for Him instead of being where we were before salvation. We get to be His day laborers instead of standing in Satan's employment line. We get the privilege of struggling to enter through a small gate instead of rolling along on a broad road leading to hell. By faith, just do what you've been commanded to do by God and leave the rest to the Lord. Isn't that free? Our task is to be faithful. Five strategies for prospering in an uncertain world. Which one of these do you need to obey? Take reasoned risk. You risk averse. Are you the type of person that delays and delays to move because you're fearful? Do you need to expect uncontrollable circumstances? Are you shocked whenever things don't go your way, things that are inevitable? Are you prone to analysis paralysis? Do you measure twice and cut once? Do you measure four times and then never cut at all? Do you need to recognize human limits? Your ignorance comes before your dependence. And maybe you just need to perform personal duty or be reminded that God has promised a harvest for your labor. Don't give up, dear Christian. The promise of reward is coming. Chew by your heads. Maybe you're listening or you're here today, and this is obviously a message to believers. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have never bowed the knee to Him. I can't do that in your heart. I can't give you some simple mantra or sinner's prayer that's going to voila you into the kingdom. But what I can tell you is that you've heard the gospel probably many times. You're a sinner and that you're separated from God. You're a rebel and you need a new heart. You need to be born again, born from above. And only God can do that. And that's the work of the Spirit, is you hear, you repent, and you believe. And this morning, as God convinces you of that, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to trust Christ. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn to Him. And if you do, the Bible says that the Lord will not put you to shame. He'll save you. It's a wonderful promise. Now, maybe you're a Christian, and you're here, or you're listening and there's something that the Lord's convicted you about today. Don't let it leave. Go back to your notes. Commit even now to the Lord the, your intention to obey it. Go back to your notes tomorrow. Spend this week studying even more, committing it to the Lord all over again. It's not just hearing that brings about change. It's obeying. Don't just appreciate the truth. Apply the truth. Father, we love you. We thank you for your great work. We thank you for your clear word and how through labor uh, and the gifting of your spirit, you help us to understand. 
Oh, Father, what a day it will be when you remove the curse. How wonderful it will be, Lord, when we are not outside of the garden any longer, but we're going to be in the very garden of God in heaven. Until that day, help us to not just hold the fort down and to give up. Help us to labor for Jesus' sake, trusting Him in all things, we pray. Amen.